Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Welcome to the latest episode of Independent Minded, the podcast about independent artists hosted by me, an independent artist myself. And if you're a fan of Elvis Duran and The Morning Show, then you probably know this already. Uh, This is my last podcast as a member of Elvis Duran and The Morning Show. I'm actually here uh, on a Thursday, the day after the 4th of July, producing this episode up. The show is on vacation, as we usually are this time of year, and it's like a ghost town in here. My once-occupied studio, filled with junk and tchotchkes, is now practically empty. The sun is going down in New York City, and it's a bittersweet moment. The good news is the podcast is going to continue in independent fashion, but I am moving on from uh, 21 years in the commercial radio business, all of which have been spent here at Z100 in New York City. I've lived my whole life in the New York, New Jersey, tri-state area, and I'm moving to Washington, D.C. to go work at NPR, National Public Radio. And the fine folks there have allowed me to continue to do the podcast independently, and who knows what will happen after that, but I'm almost 80 episodes in. I've been doing this since 2012. I've interviewed some amazing artists, both old and new, talked to a few of my idols, and learned a lot, and certainly been inspired to continue to make music on my own as a result of these interviews and this podcast. So... Thank you, the listeners, for being part of this journey. This is not the end of it. It's uh, the end of a chapter, I would guess. A long-ass chapter, probably too long. (laughs) And a new one is about to begin. I've got a couple more interviews lined up this summer, so expect episode 80, 81 uh, later this summer. And we'll try to keep a regular one to two episode per month schedule going on as I make the transition down to the nation's capital where there's lots going on oh boy and if you're an independent artist and you're interested in being featured on the podcast hey we're going to do it remotely now we're going to do it over the phone we're going to improvise until i can plant my firm buttocks firmly into a seat in a studio again and do this the old-fashioned way ron at baldfreak.com is where you can reach out moving forward follow the podcast and me on social It's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Bald Freak Music. And my guest for episode 79 of the podcast is Delilah Paz. She's one half of the band The Last International. They're a New York City rock band. The guitar player in this band was also supposed to show up, but unfortunately his grandmother passed away and he had to go to Portugal. I'd say that's a good excuse for not being able to make it. So my condolences to Edgy. So it was just Delilah and I, and uh, this is a band that my girlfriend turned me on to this band. And my girlfriend turns me on to a lot of bands. My girlfriend turns me on in general. What's up? And she saw this band in Jersey City, New Jersey, once upon a time, and she's like, you got to check these guys out. Uh, Apparently, the live show is incredible. The energy level is high. The players are attractive. And this is a band that writes and performs political songs with titles such as Workers of the World Unite, just to give you uh, an example. There's another cool story here. This is a band that was signed to a major label. Their debut album was released on Epic Records in 2014. It was produced by Brendan O'Brien, who's worked with the likes of Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots, etc., etc. The guy's a legend in the recording business. And in addition to touring all around the world, they've opened for everyone from Robert Plant to The Who to Kings of Leon to Neil Young, One Republic, Lenny Kravitz, uh, Brad Wilk, the drummer from Rage Against the Machine, played drums with them on their debut album and some shows in support of that album. And they're not on the label anymore. 
And I didn't know this until I had already booked the interview and I did the research. And it's interesting to me to hear their story because when you're on a major label and you've got a lot of things like that going on for you, why would you want to leave? Well, stay tuned and you will find out. And interview Delilah is not really like live performance Delilah. She was a little shy. She's from New York. Hey, how you doing? So am I. That was cool. We talked with our accents. Hey, hey, oh, he goes one way. Hey, oh. And there was a nice added touch. Instead of Edgy, the guitarist, being here, Delilah brought up her mom. So this is the first independent-minded podcast episode where I interviewed somebody while their mom was in the room. And mom also happened to be a huge fan of Elvis Duran and the Morning Show, so everybody wins. We talked about the new album, Soul on Fire. They're putting the album out through Pledge Music, which is a common practice for independent bands these days. We talk about the band losing themselves, finding themselves again after an existential crisis. We also cover music therapy, Letterman, rock and roll, changing the world, and living amongst aliens and vampires. As usual, we cover all the bases right here on the Independent Minded Podcast. We're going to kick it off with a song from the band's forthcoming album. It's called Hard Times. I'd say that's an apt title in today's political climate. Then my interview with Delilah from The Last International, right here on Independent Minded. Let's rock! It's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast. It's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast. He's talking to people who make all the music. He's plugging their projects. He's making them famous. He's helping them out just by making them talk about all the bullshit that they do.
All right, I'm very happy to have uh, New York City's own one half of uh, the last international, Delilah. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I didn't realize you're a Long Islander. Yeah, well, I was born in the Bronx. When I was little, I lived in Brighton Beach in Maspeth, but then I grew up in Elmont. And now you're in this dirty, gritty blues rock band. You've been in this band for quite a while now. Yeah. With Edgy, who is your guitarist. And I was looking in the lobby for this tall dude with long hair, and I saw two women. You hear your mom's here playing Edgy today. She's in the background. Yeah. <laughs> Say hi, Charlene. So you walked right a, past us. I did I walk like, I right past you. <laughs> so Edgy couldn't be with us here today. So you're going to have to really like pick up the slack here. Are you ready to do that? Yeah, I am. All I right, am. we're going to get into uh, a whole bunch of subjects, including your new album, which is forthcoming called Soul on Fire. Mm-hmm. And I went and I listened to your album, which was released a few years ago called We Will Rain. Became a fan. Mm-hmm. And then when it was time to start booking interviews for this podcast, I interview a lot of independent artists because I'm an independent musician myself. You guys were on my short list. And when I reached out, you said, yeah, you'll come up and talk. And I started doing the research and I found out that there's a big story behind what's been going on with this band that I kind of want to dig deeper into, if you'll allow me. You're basically self-funding your album now on Pledge Music, right? Yeah. You were signed to Epic. And you put out a very polished album produced by Brendan O'Brien, a very guitar hero style, blues rock, definitely commercial sounding. Mm -hmm. And it sounded like it kind of had all the all the ingredients that major labels look for. You put the album out. You know, I was really impressed with it, but I did some research, watched some interviews. I could tell based on the artistic integrity of this band and the political bent of this band, that maybe it could have been an oil and water situation. But why don't you tell me the story? What (laughs) what happened between We Will Rain and what is now going to be the the rollout of this new album, Soul on Fire? How we got signed to Epic Records was a weird story in itself. Yeah, we'll tell me that first. So L.A. Reid signed us. And he's a a huge pop guy. (laughs) But, you know, he's like, like... a pretty well-known guy and he's big into pop but he heard from our manager a woody guthrie cover of deportees and it was super folky and he's like i don't know why but this is from the manager so i didn't hear him say this personally but he's like i don't know why but there's something about this that i love but he didn't know why it didn't sound like anything pop and it was like a political song from i think it was written in the, the 1920s that song so <laughs> but he, i think he felt the emotion in the voice then we wrote a song called Wanted Man, and he loved that song. So he thought that could be like a quote-unquote pop song. <laughs> so he's already kind of molding clay, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. Doing it in like a sly way. I mean, everyone in that label, they were really cool and really friendly, but they kind of like, you know, like they would put things in there and try to like change us and we will reign. I'm proud of that album, but it was definitely a little too polished. Like what we sound like yeah. live is totally different. I think it's much more raw. So I this, actually had, yeah. I wrote the word polish down next to, next ah, to the yeah. album. Yeah. I would agree with that. But then after that, it was definitely oil and water situation. It was weird. I think we lost ourselves. We, me and Edgy were like, who the hell are we? What are we doing? We're having like this like existential crisis and weird breakdown. Like we totally got like depressed. And, and then I think we lost why we were doing it. Like, why are we doing music? It wasn't working out. So <laughs> this time we decided to go totally like independent and grassroots and all that and see what happens. And produce it ourselves and i don't know if people like it then that's cool well <laughs> it's inter- it's interesting to me i kind of had a period interest in the band and then i went and i watched the pledge music video and i and i immediately yeah. said regardless of my opinion on the music which is already pretty high after hearing the songs that you sent me we heard one of them already from the forthcoming album i've heard so many stories like this without even mm. knowing the story there were little yeah. hints 
in the video that maybe as somebody who's kind of been through that roller coaster ride on a different in a different way, like I, I got it. I think Edgy said something about when the A and R we're done with A and R guys telling us uh, that our guitars <laughs> sound too much like a guitar. Yeah. <laughs> about how there is a lot of meddling going on, and mm-hmm. it kind of ruins the purity of a band potentially because they want to mold you into something that you're potentially not yeah in that moment i'm like all right i definitely want to have you guys come up and and talk to you about that situation now also in the video a couple of quotes uh you know you said the artist's best work comes through times of struggle and you said it's the darkest time of our lives i don't think you were being dramatic there like Mm. you you said you had an existential crisis i think when you lose yourself in something that you put so much time into Mm. that was really hard for me and like not just the financial because we had like zero money like stuff like that, but I've had zero money before and like we started with zero money. So that wasn't the bad part, but it's like putting so much time into something and uh, you have to like re-find yourself, I guess. And then I also, Soul and Fire took on like a more personal turn. So you had a, I had to go like deep into my own personal struggles and all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, can we know. talk about that or is that, uh, is that not for uh, public consumption? Explain things is weird. <laughs> <laughs> Mom messed up my life. No, I'm joking. <laughs> no. She's the most wonderful person. She ever. seems Actually, like it. she saved me. <laughs> uh, well, okay, that's what mom is supposed to do, right? Yeah. Well, she's from she's Long Island, superhero. right? Yeah, she's tough. Well, she's from the Bronx, actually. So oh, you're from the she's Bronx. She's even tougher, more senior, which is like the tough part of the Bronx. So. It's called Soul and Fire because we wanted to do it like an album of stories and like put everything in there. You know, like we talk about the like you know the music industry in itself too in all of the songs. And how it's related to personal struggle and also related to what's going on in the world. Like everything's related. There's a reason why we're hearing a certain type of music on the radio instead of uh, what was going on in the 60s. You know, like things were more natural and things are more processed now, like sonically. And I think there's a reason for that, too. I noticed the difference right away between the songs you sent me for the new album mm-hmm. and the songs on We Will Rain. Like there's grittier production. Your vocals are like more distorted and kind of... I'm angry or maybe not the right word, but at least on the songs I heard. What else should fans expect from these new songs that they didn't necessarily hear on songs from the previous album? We used uh, Joey Castillo as a drummer on most of the songs, and he's played with Queens of the Stone Age for a long time. Sure. We went on tour with him. He was playing with Scott Weiland, and we met him, and we loved his drumming. But when he came to the studio, he was only going to do like three songs with us, and we didn't know his drum was so like versatile. So we ended up doing one song, it's called Need Somebody, like in the studio and uh, just like one take. And we kind of like wrote the song there. So that's kind of a cool thing. We never did that before. Things were much more organic, I think, and flowing. And I think I learned to trust myself more, which was a cool thing, like uh, being able to say more lyrically because I wasn't thinking about like a big pop guy is going to think about the lyrics or because a lot of times they don't, you know, they want you to totally simplify, even though I think our lyrics are simple, but they want you to say a little like... uh, catchphrases that everyone can like was you know, it, we really, I mean were you really that much under the microscope I'm, I'm only curious because I've certainly I had that whole circus life where you would perform for A&R guys whether at clubs you were playing in the city or even were showcases where you would go to rehearsal space and then mm. five people would awkwardly like stand there and watch you and you'd have to kind of try to recreate the energy of playing to a live audience when you're just on a, a riser in front of five uh, A&R guys. Yeah. I never got to the point where, and I certainly put albums out independently, but I never got to the point where I was actually in the room and an A&R, A&R guy was coming in and giving me notes on my songs or my playing or my singing or whatever. It sounds like that's yeah. exactly what you guys went through. It wasn't until we were actually in the studio, because 
it was okay. This is what happened. The manager at the time became the A and R at the label, so that was an even weirder experience. So the person who was your manager, yeah, now became A and R at the label. Yeah. Okay, so that's kind of we, they call that a conflict of interest. Yeah. Uh, typically. <laughs> and we didn't know. I won't say his name, and I still, you know, I still like. Yeah, it might be bad if I talk. Anybody, right. We're here to just tell the story. <laughs> yeah. It was very quick to get signed, and I think that was the weird thing too. Like, I think Ellie Reed just heard that song, and then he's like, okay, like. And then the manager became the A&R. So he was like bringing in bands to create like a, a new own, rock department or something. Right. Or, their own little kind of boutique section of a bigger label, I would say. Right. Yeah. Were there other labels pursuing you at the time? We never got offered a deal. So we just like, yeah, whatever. It was sign it. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we the heard, classic yeah. tale. Okay. <laughs> I don't think we, we didn't even read it. We're just like, okay, sign it. All right. Yeah. Good idea, guys. <laughs> Well, your manager is supposed to kind of guide you, but it sounds like, again, if your manager has a vested interest in adding more to the roster and making a name for himself in the process, then he's going to say, yeah, of course, sign this. You yeah. Know? So now are you, you're free and clear of, of the Epic contract, I would imagine. Yes. Right? And are you free and clear? Like, you know, I know from my own experience, the last band I signed to my indie label, I went to like um, the Mercury Lounge on a... Uh, on a rando night, I'd found out about this band called The Headset in, in CMJ. Uh, a bunch of like Harvard grads kind of played like Talking Head style, old school uh -huh. U2 uh, television, like that. So really cool. good charismatic lead singer. I saw all the things in that band that I could see like a major label A&R guy seeing. And working here mm -hmm. at uh, Z100, for better or for worse, I'm surrounded by bands like this all the time. So I, I kind of felt like... This is something that not only do I like personally because I like the music, but it's marketable. Mm. And they had been signed, not surprisingly, to a publishing deal with Sony ATV. And I had to have lunch with their attorney and go through how how do we get them out of this deal? And mm. it kind of restricted me to getting their publishing rights because I felt like their songs should have been in soundtracks and stuff like that. So yeah. from your perspective, I would imagine, again, this is still Epic Records. It's still the major label machine. They just said, okay, you're good, or did you have to negotiate your way out of that situation? We were on Sony ATV too, and we did have to negotiate something. Um, Epic was fine. I think we can't like record our own music over like seven years or something like that. We can't record like We Will Rain Again or any songs from there. That sounds relatively painless, yeah. all things considered. <laughs> so now you're free. Why do you go the let's do it ourselves route? There are other labels out there. You're a marketable commodity. You have all these new songs. You've played for Hugh Jacks. You've been on Letterman and you've played big festivals. I'm sure indie labels would probably be interested in you if you wanted to go that route. Do you have new management now or are you just doing it on your own? No, we have we shut everyone. Cause actually, I mean, a lot of people from Epic and around that time like totally left Like when we weren't signed yeah, anymore. That's the like, nature of the later. business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Those are other stories you hear about how bands who get signed and then their A&R guy gets fired or goes to another label and then yeah. they have no champion anymore and they're just, yeah, you know, they just totally. wind up on a shelf. Yeah. What's the motivation for taking it from the top of the mountain as far as getting budgets and support to, mm -hmm. man, we're going to just do all this on our own? I just couldn't do it again. I don't know. In this time period, so. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> I wanted is it to... trust issues or is it, uh, you said, and again, what is this existential crisis? Was there a moment? Is there a specific moment or a show or a day after rehearsal where you just, where you just guys just kind of huddled up and you were like, I'm sure you both kind of knew it wasn't like a shock that you were kind of headed in that direction, but was there a breaking point for the last international? I think because we, we didn't realize what was 
what was happening to us and like who am i like even like we were living in hollywood for like that period of time oh, too wow. so, the glitz and the glamour yeah it was just weird i'm like who like who are these people like freaking aliens and vampires and it just started <laughs> creeping me out and like i don't know the whole thing got weird and like, i'm really sensitive to like people's like energies or whatever yeah. so for me it's just and i have anxiety too and some, some depression so like i think that being around those people was like not healthy overwhelming either. i'm yeah. sure yeah in a lot of ways the first song we ever wrote was called workers of the world unite so how do we get back to that music that means something you know right on know. all right so now you're doing the pledge music thing it's become a big avenue for bands big and small heritage bands new bands you met your goal tell me about yeah. that experience of adapting to interacting with fans via the web versus in person. It seems that's a big part of your live performances. And I've seen in interviews where Edgy talks about it's important to interact with people like one-on-one as opposed yeah. to through your the electronic devices. And it's a necessary evil in today's day and age. I mean, I'm at a radio yeah. station where it's all about the numbers. What has that been like? Has it been cool? Has it been weird to just sit there at mm-hmm. a computer and wait for the, it's like uh, the Jerry Lewis telethon. Are you waiting for that and like to hit that number? Does it add any like insecurity to the situation or are you just felt 100% confident, we're going to do this, this is how we're going to do it, we're going to make the budget, and we're going to go on, and we'll do what we're yeah. going to do. That's kind of how we were feeling. Yeah. All right, good. All right, so, yeah, <laughs> I think because so. we had to we had to believe that. I felt, I felt really confident. We have a fan base that's like spread out. We have a lot of fans in like the UK, mostly in Europe, and they all came out to like support, which was really cool. Yeah. But it's mostly Europe, some in the US, but uh, I think most of our fan base is there. I mean, you know. So. Well, you hear it right before what's going to be a relatively lengthy European tour. And yeah. I wanted to ask you that. You know, it seems to me, from my own experience and just talking to other bands and other artists on this podcast, there's more of a rabid fan base for music and rock music in particular in Europe. Mm-hmm. Are you going to follow that up with local dates or are you just going to see how that goes after you come back from Europe? I think we'd do a, like an album release show, maybe September, whenever. We get a, re- I don't know. We have to do it. So it's all on us now. When the yeah, album you have released, to do it. It's a whole list of things you got to <laughs> yeah. do now. That's another thing I want to ask as somebody, again, who I, I ran my own record label for seven years because I basically had those issues yeah. where I'm like, no one's going to support your art more than you. I mean, yeah. that's what it comes down to. Everybody will have some sort of maybe vested interest financially or they'll mm-hmm. be a friend. But at the end of the day, no one's going to care more about your art than you as the way it should be. Yeah. But now you got to plan a tour. You got to plan an album release. You got to make the merch. Is this all you? Like, it sounds like it's it's all you from soup uh, to nuts. Pretty much. Uh, it's all us, except we have a booking agent in Europe. But all the other stuff is us, which I'm cool with. It's like our, our, ba- our baby kind of, so you got to like. Yeah, it's your everything. <laughs> right. Unfortunately, I feel like it's something that potentially can interfere. I, that's the way I felt when I ran my label is that I'm mm-hmm. a businessman now. I'm the postmaster general. I'm filling out customs labels to send one of my artists, you know, guitar picks out to the Netherlands. Well, yeah. And I'm not sitting at the piano anymore and I'm not practicing my vocals and I'm not taking the time out to write songs. Is that a concern of you guys now that, yeah, it is your baby. You're going to be up late. The baby's going to be crying (laughs) at two o'clock in the morning and somebody's got to get up and sing a lullaby to him. Yeah. It's more than just rocking and rolling. With us, when we focused on the music, like for the record, kind of other things were falling apart. Like the business side was falling apart a little bit. But then we're like, you know, we just got to focus on the music. And our good friend Tom Morello is always giving us advice. And he's like, you got to just focus on the music and who gives a shit about anything else. 
Even though he's rich and he's well, successful. So. <laughs> you took the words out of my mouth there. And I'm a big Rage fan. I'm a big Tom Rowe fan. Now, I heard some piano on the trailer on your Pledge Music campaign. Mm. Is that you? Is that somebody else? No, that's me. The, that's a song called Stay. Yeah. Which is not in the album. I don't know why it's in, we put it in the video. Oh, it's... But uh, I think we, it, that was a demo, actually. I went through a phase of like writing like 20 ballads on piano. So we have like a whole bunch. And no ballads are on the album. But I just, I feel like I had to write all these sad, like, ballad songs. Yeah. Well, you that's needed, one of them. You needed to release that from your, <laughs> yeah. from your soul. But okay. So, but is I, this I think it's going to be a free uh, download or something. All right. Yeah. You don't want to let those ballads go to waste. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, especially if there are so ballad. many. Maybe just do a companion EP to the album release. Yeah. I'm giving you ideas. That's a good you idea. Have I like it. So. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you 10%. All right. Hey. Oh, wow. <laughs> all right. How about I just play piano on tour with you guys? Because I play the piano. And, oh, uh, sweet. Okay. All right. And Sounds I'll take the good. 10%. <laughs> uh, I saw you guys were on Letterman. I'm a big fan. Mm. What was that like? What I did notice at the end of the video was that his reaction was extended. You know, a lot of times he'll yeah. come over and say something or he kind of has his go-to lines where he'll talk to the drummer about the drummer's drum kit. But he, yeah. he kind of stood there in reverie of you guys after the performance was over. Almost to the point where I felt like you almost didn't know how to react to how long. Yeah, I didn't know lasted. how to react. I think I was super awkward with him. First of all, I had I was wearing this jacket with hands up, don't shoot on the back. I yeah. don't know if that they taped it though. And I'm like, okay, at the end, I'm gonna turn around, put my back, so they can tape the jacket. I'm well, supposed it was on to be YouTube. this whole. Yeah. yeah, and then he came over, and I'm like, oh my god, should I turn around? In my head, I'm like, oh my god, I'm like freaking out because he's coming towards me. I'm like super awkward <laughs> with the handshake. <laughs> Because he's really tall, too. Like, he doesn't, I don't know. I guess he's, he looks tall on camera. He, yeah, but he's tall. Know. Yeah. He's tall. So that's he intimidating like a giant. <laughs> he looked like a giant in person. I don't know. Scary. You've also opened for Robert Plant, Neil Young, uh, The Who. There's more. There's more on this list. Hold on. And all bands I love. Kings of Leon, Morello, we mentioned. Lenny Kravitz, Incubus, uh, Royal Blood. What's that like? We, we did one summer, like two years ago, opening up for all the I think the Who was the same year as Robert Plant or something. Or If David Letterman's intimidating you, what is this like, like sharing the stage with these legends? The first show was with Robert Plant. He was coming up, or I was going up the stairs. We were about to go on, and he was coming down the stairs. And he's like, oh, hello, I'm, I'm Robert Plant. And like, I was like, I know who you are. And then I'm like, I shook his hand. I got all, <laughs> of course, all weird. But he was super nice. Like He was really down to earth. Like Most of the artists, like the Who... I think at first when you meet them, like you kind of like freak out. Then they just, you know, become just like other fellow artists. Or, right. You know, after a while. So any current artists, any peers like from our generation that you admire or that you would like consider teaming up with this time around, you know, when this album is released? Uh, um, I really like Alabama Shakes. I think they're doing oh, cool nice. stuff. Yeah. Gary Clark Jr. He's really cool. Cool. Um, All right. You're giving me some good ones. Yeah. So you're originally from New York City. How did you and Edgy meet up? I don't know if we met at a protest, but it was like during that time where we were like every week it was something like going out and like protesting. So, but I was playing like really folky, like acoustic guitar stuff, like only learning other people's songs, like uh, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan. Yeah. I was in this like really early 60s, like folk phase <laughs> when we met and he um, was listening to like the blues and he had a blues mentor. So we we're both like discovering like Woody Guthrie at the same time. And how does that transcend into let's start a band together? How long does that take? Who suggests not, it? Not I didn't want to actually. 
Had you been in bands again. before this or are you just doing your own thing? No, I was just my own thing and singing. And I didn't even know what, what I wanted to do. Like I wanted to sing, but I didn't know what I never imagined being in a band. And I didn't have any I didn't have any confidence on stage then. I was working in a nursing home. I was actually doing music therapy. Oh, very cool. And <laughs> we started the band around then when I first started working there and then he's like, Let's just go on the road. Like I found like this like promoter in Seattle. And we just have to get a van and go across the country. And it was like winter time. I'm like thinking like, all right, that sounds fun. I'm like, all right, I'm going to quit my job. So I ended up just quitting. And then I never went back. Like, oh, know. can I ask your mom what she thought about that? <laughs> yeah, what do you think of that? <laughs> yeah. Super laid back, uh, mom. All right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> see, my parents always drilled those middle class values into me. I mean, they uh, bought me my drum set when I was 13 and they made me take piano lessons. Uh, you know, I have that kind of musical background, but when it was yeah. time to go to college and get a job and get insurance mm. and buy property, like they were on the front lines making sure I did all that stuff. Uh, and yeah. that's why I've always had this two lane career, mostly making the money right here sitting, not from doing this podcast, but <laughs> so you trusted this guy He's not here to defend himself. No, yeah. Edgy, where are you? Uh, you just I could get him on WhatsApp, though, <laughs> in Portugal. I mean, this is not like, hey, let's go play CBGBs. This is let's get in a van yeah. and quit your job and yeah. let's go t- across the country and do this. Yeah. What was it about him or what was it about the vibe that you had musically that just made you decide this is the best idea? When we first started like playing together, he played me some songs that he wrote. There was something about them and like his writing that, and we both write for the band. So yeah. Um, in the beginning, I was like, I wasn't writing, and like there was something about that like, I believed in his writing, and I'm like, there's something different here. Like that was it. Like when I heard him writing, and it wasn't even like it was like folk songs. It was like uh, I think it was a song called "Ballad of a Yuppie Liberal" that he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, no one, no one's like writing like this. So like. Then when we created the band, I'm like, okay, I'm going to bring this to my grave. Like, this is like, I have this, like, uh, if I believe in something, I'm going to, like, keep doing it, even if it never gets anywhere. That's how, in my head, I'm like, even if this never gets anywhere, I'm going to keep doing it, so. Well, I (laughs) want to talk about where these seeds were planted. I know he was a political science major. Yeah. If he was already interested in stuff like this before college, then he was probably knee-deep in it by the time he got there. What's your story? What about your upbringing or your life has made you so uh, socially conscious, and where did that start? I remember third grade was when I felt like a click of like questioning and not believing things. Like, I would, you know, I'm not believing like the story of the American Indians and the natives here, like, you know, Christopher Columbus, like, yeah. wasn't real. Actually, my dad was pretty political. So he, like, I guess planted a seed of, like, not trusting the government and all that. That's not the real story. So then I would go get books and stuff. And I remember getting, um, ordering a pamphlet from Greenpeace and, like, seeing the people um, stopping the whaling boats and all that. And I'm, like, reading these stories. I'm like, wow, like, those are, like, my heroes. Like, at one point, I'm like, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go be on a boat and, like, stop these people from overfishing. Like, Save the whales, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, it was always things like that. Like, you know, you want to be a part of some kind of change or like, I thought those people were like amazing that they were doing that. As an artist, you have power. And I've had mm-hmm. other artists up here who are very politically bent and I try not to get too political on the podcast, but of course, yeah. how can you not, you know, what's in the news today? How can you not uh, be affected by mm-hmm. what's happening around us? So what can musicians yeah. do? Lately, I've been thinking a lot about the music, um, like soul music and 
But that's a lot what influenced this record was soul music. And I revisited like the early soul artists and their way of expressing things was, I don't know, it was really interesting because they put their whole selves into the song and the music and it was very emotional. So I don't know if that's answering your question, but <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm going, I, sometimes I go off on like a weird thought. I feel like we had something in the 60s, even though I wasn't alive then, but <laughs> like- Yeah, nor I. It's, yeah. I've heard the rumors but, though. <laughs> There was something happening with culture and music. You know, we, we know that like there was yeah. something amazing happening and it can happen again in a different way. Or, you know, there's a reason why the music we hear on the radio, there's no rock and roll anymore. I feel like rock and roll can change the world. Like Patti Smith had that thought too, like with her lyrics. Like, I feel like we can do something with the music. But What about your musical influence? I hear Grace Slick. I hear Ann Wilson. You said you wrote songs on the piano, you play bass, mm -hmm. you sing, you have a very soulful voice. Where did all that come from? I'm like a sponge. So like if I listen to something, I think my voice is totally different now than with the We Will Rain record. I don't like staying the same. Like kind of like Bob Dylan when he goes, he like sounds totally different now than he did. Like each record sounds like a different singer. I think. Sure. I think I'm doing that and I love to keep listening. Like I still love music and I want to keep getting better. And keep like pushing myself. So was Dylan somebody who you were into when you were younger, or somebody you kind of discovered later on? I discovered him later on. Yeah, I actually didn't like him growing up. Nor did I. I. Think, really? <laughs> well, you yeah, know, because his I voice is nasally and not commercial. And I grew up in the '80s when "We Are the World" was uh, uh, was like one of the biggest things on the planet. And you know, you see him there with his sunglasses on. He seems unaffected, like he doesn't even want to be there. Yeah. You see Bruce Springsteen in a completely different light because of. Not a lot That's of people true. were cool in the eighties. Yeah, I think I, I mean like the Rolling Stones got a little weird then. Yeah, like I'm a huge Bowie fan, but the first time I saw Bowie, he was dancing in the streets with Mick Jagger, and <laughs> he was not cool. Like that was not cool. That's true. I love Bruce Springsteen too. He's probably yeah. Give me more top. of this. Like tell me, yeah. Forget about like as you got older. Like what are your earliest memories of music? Did you grow up in uh, a musical household? Should I ask your mom um, what the origins are? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Did we grow up with <laughs> No, my mom paints. Her paintings were like musical expressions. <laughs> yeah, do you think there's like a genetic thing going on? Is there something in your family that uh, that I made you pick yeah. up a guitar for the first time? Or are you a groundbreaker? My dad and my mom are artists, like painters. So I think it's oh, related cool. to the artistic uh, thing. I loved Bob Marley when I was little. Cool. Loved the song Jammin'. I would like jam to that all the time. Blondie, my dad, because he listened to music a lot. But my mom and my dad were divorced, so I would go like visit him, and he would be the music person. Like Joni, he loved Joni Mitchell, so a lot of the music I would overhear, and like I think that's how I got into liking music, or you know, having like a, a visceral reaction to it when I was young. You remember the first show you ever went to, and how it affected you? I think it was like a Susie and the Ban. My dad took me to it. Susie and the Banshees concert. Nice. I think All that right. was what. It and I, I thought she was weird when I was little. Yes, like, yeah, she probably was. Kind of like freaked me out. But <laughs> <laughs> there's something about her voice I remember that I was like drawn to. Like, what is that? Like, I love singers still. Like, I'm like fascinated by voices. Yeah. I think that's why I wanted to become a singer too, because I'm just like, I don't know. I'm fascinated by how sound comes out of people. <laughs> So. And no formal training. You just kind of sang along to other, like, that's how I got to sing was uh, just singing yeah. along to Pearl Jam albums and, and Guns N' Roses in, in my room, you know? Yeah. The same I, thing. I did in, in high school, I would do like Mariah Carey and like 
I loved like Raging His Machine, but then for singing, I would listen to like Mariah Carey and stuff and try to understand like, how are they hitting that note? And I would sit in my room for like hours listening yeah, to that. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> but in college, I did uh, classical music. Yeah, tell me about so. uh, music therapy. What was that all about? I don't know. My friend was going to do that because we were like, we were both doing classical music and I'm like, I don't know. I could either go like straight and be a classical singer or do something else with music. This was before the band. so Yeah. And she told me about music therapy, and I'm like, whoa, it's really interesting. I originally wanted to work with uh, veterans at a veterans hospital, people with PTSD. It was really, really interesting. I did my internship at the cancer hospital, Sloan Kettering. That was, like, super emotional because working with people with cancer and, like, using music as a tool. Like, we did songwriting. We did, like, all different types of things. I think music therapy was amazing, so... I guess I use that in some way, like with the band. <laughs> you know. I ask because it's an incredibly noble cause for somebody who obviously has a very deep interest in music. Mm-hmm. On the less rock and roll level. Uh, yeah. So I think it's rock and roll. Was that music your- Music therapy. You think music therapy is rock yeah. and roll? <laughs> Did you graduate from college? Yeah. Where'd you go? Uh, Malloy College. Malloy? In Rockville Center, yes. Oh, wow. Okay, I know. <laughs> and I I've... still owe a whole bunch of loans. Which you never get in my money now. All right, we got to do another pledge music campaign to to get. School is super expensive. It was only everyone else had. I went to Brooklyn College. I don't want to tell you how uh, how cheap my tuition was. uh, Edgy went there for his. I think he got his master's there. Brooklyn College. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. There too. And he's not even here. I can't even talk to him about it. I'm glad you came down to talk about the new record. And uh, I've become a fan thanks to the performances, the music, the, everything about the band is exciting to me. I just hope that you uh, you lock down and, and you realize that it's going to be a lot of work moving forward. Are you ready to yeah. Are you ready to take on the challenge? I'm ready. My, uh, I'm, yeah. All right. Yeah. If Edgy was so. here, would he say he was ready? He probably He's ready. Yeah. He's more of a business guy. Him. He's the businessman. Yeah, he has a business, like, a natural... I think you you probably do, too, like, a natural business... I don't know why you would say that about me, but... Well, you have a record label and all that. I did have a record label, but I still work here in the radio business, so obviously that (laughs) didn't work out too well. (laughs) (laughs) Delilah from The Last International. Why is it International, by the way? How'd that E get on the end? Uh, (laughs) Well, there was the first International, and the second originated in France. It was like a working class, like workers that rose up and they created uh, a political group uh, to support each other. We thought of the name The Last International. We were totally for like human rights and workers' rights. So we wanted something that was like political and like re- related to the past and what people did, right like on. struggling. So a lot of people just say TLI for short. I can imagine that people probably call it the last international. Does that yeah. you know, rub you guys the wrong way? Is it like, do you regret nah, the putting fine. that e at the end? Are you okay with it? <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate the spirit of the band. I appreciate Thank the passion. And I certainly shines through in the music. I'm looking forward to hearing the full record once it comes out. Delilah from yeah. The Last International. Thank you. Thanks for stopping in today. All right. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. Keep on taking Till you ain't got none But baby, I wasn't built to die Lay down to be crucified Now no matter how hard they try to push me down Still I rise So on fire
That was Soul on Fire, the title track from the new album by The Last International. Earlier in the podcast, we heard Hard Times from the same album, and it's coming out soon. Your guess is as good as mine, but I'm looking forward to it. Find out more about the new album. Pre-order it online at pledgemusic.com slash international, or just go to tlinyc.com, and you can link to the pre-order there. And follow the band online, facebook.com slash international, on Twitter at TLIMusic, and on Instagram at International. I want to thank Delilah for stopping in, her mom for tagging along, and the loveliest man in the radio business. Is this the last time I'm doing this? Oh, man. I love you, man. Elvis Duran. Look at you, Mr. Smarty Pants.